right. Uh, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting Father, yes, gracious Yahuwah Almighty, yes. we gather before you once more yes. because it is a great day for rejoicing. Amen. Whenever we have the opportunity to learn from your holy words, yes. we know, Father, we will truly benefit Yes. Because our souls are hungry for your biblical truth. Amen. May you feed and nourish our souls tonight. Yes. May you send your Holy Spirit to comfort and strengthen us all. Yes. And help us, Father, to know your will yes. thoroughly and comprehensively. Yes. That we will be well guided, especially during these trying times. Amen. Our Lord Yahusha, we praise and worship you as well. Yes, May you join us in every part of our assembly. Yes. Be with us as we seek the will of our God. Yes. We can be led to you and also to our Father. Amen. Father, please forgive all our sins. Yes. For we ask and beg all things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen. All right. Our topic for tonight is uh, Exodus insidious. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word insidious? You're probably thinking of that movie, all right? And so you probably thought this, this part of uh, the history of the Bible is going to be pretty scary. You're probably thinking, what is Israel going to face this time? Because last time they faced the Amalekites. What are they going to face this time, which is so insidious? By the way, do you know what the word insidious means? What does insidious mean? It means something that brings danger to you, but you're not aware of it. Perhaps it's invisible, right? And so you're not aware it is destroying you and is a threat against you. Hence, it is called insidious. Now, before we go ahead and get to all of that, let's go ahead and do a quick recap. Last week, we talked about the people of Israel and how they went to Rephidim. In Rephidim, they encountered a trial. They complained about water, but God used a miracle, which was a prophecy about the coming of the Mashiach, our Lord and Savior, Yahushua the Christ. And in Rephidim, they also faced the powerful force of the Amalekites. But because of God and his power, right, Yahuwah and his banner, Yahuwah Nichi, and so because of God's power and help, the people of Israel prevailed and overwhelmed the forces of the Amalekites. And so that was in Rephidim. But take note, their journey is to go all the way where? Their journey is to go all the way there in Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And so that is where we're going to take you today. We're going to go near Mount Sinai. We're not yet there. But keep in mind, in Rephidim, they face the Amalekites. In our study today, the people of Israel are going to face an adversary greater than the Amalekites. How many here know what that adversary is? Any idea what that adversary could be? That the people of Israel are going to face this time. We'll get into that. But before we get into that, who heard about what God was able to do for the sake of Israel? Let's read Exodus 18, verse 1. Moses, father-in-law, his name is Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how Yahuwah had rescued them from Egypt. Do you still remember Jethro? Way back when Moses was running away from Pharaoh, he went to Midian, met his would-be wife, 
and who was the one who took him in and taught him how to shepherd a flock? It was Jethro, who happens to be a priest of Midian. So he was a pagan priest, and so you know he wants to serve and worship. And so when he heard about God, about Yahuwah, he was thrilled to know about that, how Yahuwah rescued Israel from Egypt. And so this is what Jethro heard. Now, how do you suppose Jethro heard about what Yahuwah had done? Exodus chapter 18, and the verse is 2. This is what the Bible teaches us. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife, Zephorah, and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. So how was, oops, how was uh, Jethro able to find out about what Yahuwah did for the people of Israel to, in such detail? Perhaps it was because Zephorah and the two sons of Moses told them all about what Yahuwah had done, the miracles God used to liberate the people of Israel. You see, before this point, what did Moses do? He sent his wife, Zephora, and their two sons uh, to Jethro. Now, when exactly they did this, the Bible doesn't say. What we know is prior to this point, Zephora and the two sons are now with Jethro, and Jethro wants to meet with Moses. But do you remember the two sons of uh, Moses? Remember who they were? Not really too much is spoken about the two sons of Moses. You would think being the sons of Moses, they would do something great for the people of Israel, right? After all, Moses was not just anyone. Moses, or oh, he was the leader, the represent, representative of the old covenant. The beginning of the giving of the laws was all about Moses. So he was a big person in the Old Testament times. And so who were the sons of Moses? In Exodus 18, uh, 3, Moses' first son was named Gershom. For Moses had said, when the boy was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. So the firstborn, his name was Gershom. Where was he born? In the foreign land. Which foreign land is that? Midian, right? Well, how about his second son? Exodus 18.4, his second son was named Eliezer. For Moses had said, the God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the other son's name is Eliezer. Here's a question. Where was Eliezer born? Where do you think he was born? Probably Egypt, right? However, when we go back to Exodus 4, we get this clue. While Moses was still in Midian, Yahuwah said to him, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey and set out with them for Egypt, carrying the walking stick that God had told him to take. And so it was in, in Midian when two sons were born, because God instructed Moses to take his sons, plural, not just one son. So apparently, Eliezer was already born. So Gershom and Eliezer went to Exodus, perhaps witnessed the plagues, and the miracles that God had done. And that would be good for Eliezer and 
Gershom, right? Because we want them to be raised knowing the power of God. But how many here have heard of Gershom and Eliezer other than the fact that they were the sons of Moses? Probably not too much you know about the sons of Moses, Eliezer and Gershom, because the Bible doesn't speak too much about them. However, we did find this tidbit about both of them in the book of Chronicles 23, 15 and 17. Moses had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. The leader among Gershom's sons was Shebuel. Eliezer had only one son, Rehabiah, but Rehabiah had many descendants. So you're not going to see many other things or any other information about Eliezer other than that. Eliezer had many descendants. And so at least he had that going for him. He had many descendants. But nothing here in Chronicles is mentioned about who? Gershom, right? You notice that? You kind of like phase them out. He had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and then spoke only about Eliezer. I wonder why. I wonder what Gershom did. What was he known for? We're going to go to the book of Judges, 1830. The Danites set up the idol to be worshipped. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the grandson of Moses, served as a priest for the Danites, and his descendants served as their priests until the people were taken away into exile. Very interesting. The grandson of the author of the Mosaic Covenant, Moses himself, arguably the greatest person in the Old Testament, Moses, the one whom God spoke face to face to and appointed to be leader of the people of Israel. What happened to his second son or his firstborn? Gave birth to gave birth to a son and then gave birth to another son. And so Moses' grandson, what's his name? Jonathan, became the first priest of organized idolatry in Dan. And so he became the source, the root cause of idolatry that would eventually lead to the exile. And so because of the grandson of Moses, the people of Israel turned into apostasy or became apostatized. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Right? Jonathan, the grandson, <laughs> the grandson of Moses, the appointed leader of God's nation, became the first priest of the first organized system of idolatry to be established in Israel. It eventually led to its apostasy. Just a brief segue into what Gershom and his descendants would eventually do. Now let's go back to the topic, 18, 5 down to 6 of Exodus. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived when Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two Sons. And so after Moses, or after Jethro heard about Moses and the fact that he's near the mountain of God, what did he want to do? He wanted to come by for a visit in the wilderness. And he's going to take with him his wife and his two sons. And so when they met, what happened? Exodus 18, 7 to 8. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. 
They asked about each other's welfare and they went into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything Yahuwah had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships he had experienced along the way and how Yahuwah had rescued his people from all their troubles. And so when they were talking to each other, exchanging pleasantries and having a good conversation, in that conversation, what did Mo Moses focus upon? He focused on the hardship, the troubles that they went through in Egypt. Why? Because he wanted to create the context for the miracles that Yahuwah eventually did. You notice that you can't really separate the troubles and the hardships from the miracles. Mm -hmm. Because without the troubles and hardships, there will be no miracles. This is why the next time we find ourselves in a difficult spot, a difficult situation, something beyond our human capability, always remember hardships and troubles can become preludes to miracles. Who knows? Maybe God is setting up a miracle for each and every one of us. And so Moses, he was so happy to tell his father-in-law, Yahuwah, the Lord of heaven and earth rescued them from the people of Israel, from the people of Egypt and from all their troubles. And so what did Jethro feel? In Exodus 18, 9 to 11, Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things Yahuwah had done for Israel as he rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians. Praise Yahuwah, Jethro said. For he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know now that Yahuwah is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. And so Jethro knows about the Egyptians. Jethro knows about their gods, right? And Jethro perhaps served other gods. Maybe it's only at this point when he recognized that Yahuwah, he is the only true God. I don't know. Do you think he was converted at this point? Probably was, right? I mean, if I was Jethro, I'd be convinced. I would be converted because of the testimony of Yahuwah's miracles and his power. But we can never know if he was converted or not. But there's a good indication that perhaps he was. Why? Exodus 18 and the verses 12, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. That's a good indication, right? Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. And so perhaps he was converted. Again, we cannot be totally sure but what we know is this, Jethro praised Yahuwah, the God of the people of Israel. And at this point, God was with them when they enjoyed a meal together with Aaron and all the elders of Israel. And so what happened the next day? The next day, they're going to face an adversary, greater greater than the Amalekites. They know who, 
who they are? Who do you think they are? Let's find out. 13. The next day, here it is. Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning till evening. What do you think that great adversary is? Greater than the Amalekites. What is it? Any idea? <laughs> Themselves, right? Their disputes. You notice, Bible says, Jethro noticed Moses from morning till evening, right? He was listening to the people's disputes against each other. And so when you think about that, you think about the destructive power of disputes, right? Can you imagine all of these people together and every single one of them disputing and fighting against one another? What do you think is going to happen to the people? You think it's going to grow? It's going to divide, right? This is why disputes, that's a more insidious foe or adversary than the Amalekites. Why? First of all, they're invisible. You won't even be aware that this is happening until a point in time comes when you realize it's too late and everything's kind of segregated and divided. Why are disputes so insidious? Because without awareness, it's happening to you. It caused Israel to fight against each other instead of fighting for each other. When the Amalekites attacked, they were fighting together. They were fighting for each other. Against who? The Amalekites. This time, they were fighting against each other. And so when that happens, what do you think is going to happen to the kingdom of Israel? It's going to collapse. Because Yahusha said in Mark 3, 24, 25, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot last. And if a household is divided against itself, that household will not last. This is why our greatest foe really is ourselves. When we let disputes divide us as a people of God. And so what was the solution when there were disputes among the people of Israel? What was the key to overcoming that? Exodus 18, 15 and 16, Moses answered, I must do this because the people will come to me to learn God's will. When two people have a dispute, they come to me and I decide which of them is right. And I tell them God's commands and laws. What was the solution so that disputes would be settled and peace would be maintained to prevent the division of the people of God? People needed to know whose will? God's will, right? And so someone had to make a decision concerning the will of God. The commandments and the laws of God. Notice that uh, Moses was referring to God's commands and laws. The Ten Commandments wasn't given out yet. However, there was already in existence the commandments and the laws of God. It was not yet codified in the Ten Commandments, but there were commandments and laws of God that was with them even before the giving of the Ten Commandments. What's the proof? If you go back to Genesis 26, verse 5, I will do this because Abraham, remember Abraham? This is way before the time of Moses, before Isaac, before Joseph, right? It, I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my 
requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. And so even during the days of the patriarchs, the people belonging to God already knew about God's requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. And so the key to overcoming uh, disputes, the key to maintaining the peace is knowing the will and the commandments of our Almighty God. And so when Jethro saw Moses having to settle so many disputes, what did he say? Exodus 18, verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? What did he notice? What did Jethro notice about Moses? He was doing this by himself. He was doing it all alone. And so what was the assessment of Jethro? 17 18, he said, this is not good. Moses' father-in-law exclaimed, you're going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. And so when Jethro looked at what was happening, he, given, he, he said to Moses, what you're doing is not good. Remember, Moses was the leader of God's people, right? And here was a father-in-law said to him, this is not good. I wonder how Moses felt. If that was you, if you were in the position of Moses and you had someone tell you, you know, what you're doing is not good. Perhaps Moses would have said to him, don't you know I spoke to God face to face? Who are you to tell me that? God appointed me here, right? Don't tell me what I need to do. Just obey and never complain because I speak face to face with my God. <laughs> Jethro was telling him, you know, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and the people too. And so what did Jethro want to give Moses? Here it is. 18, 17, 19, and 20. Now let me give you some good advice. And God will be with you. It is right It is right for you to represent the people before God and bring their disputes to him. You should teach them God's commands and explain to them how they should live and what they should do. But in addition, you should choose some capable men and appoint them as leaders of the people, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so what was the advice that Jethro gave to Moses? He said to Moses, you should appoint capable people to be leaders who will help you in settling all these problems and cases among the people. That was the advice of Jethro. And what would they serve as? These leaders who are to be appointed to help Moses. Exodus 18.22, let them serve as, what does it say? Judges. For the people on a permanent basis, they can bring all the difficult cases to you, to Moses. But they themselves can decide all the smaller disputes that will make it easier for you as they share your burden. And so these leaders to be appointed by Moses what are they to function as? Bible says as judges. What does it mean for one to be a judge? One who will settle disputes among the people of God. And what will they use as the standard by which to make their decision? The words of God, the laws of God, not themselves, right? 
not their personal preferences, but the laws of God. For this reason, what are the qualifications to become a judge? Qualifications to be a leader who will assist Moses in settling disputes. There are five qualities. Five qualities. And the reason why I mention these five qualities is because during our time, we have leaders in the church, right? We have our chief shepherd. Who is our chief shepherd? Is it Moses? Our chief shepherd is our Lord Yahusha, but he has leaders appointed here to assist him to, be, to, to do the work here on earth, right, in settling disputes. And so if there are elders here on earth leading the small remnant, they should comply with the following five qualities. These are very important qualities. I wonder what they are. Let's read Exodus 18. You should teach them God's commands and explain to them how they should live and what they should do. But in addition, you should choose some capable men and appoint them as leaders of the people. Leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They must be God-fearing men who can be trusted and who cannot be bribed. There are five qualities there. Do you notice the five qualities? What's the first quality? They should be teachable, right? Because sometimes there are people who are not teachable. They're stuck. They're complacent. They don't want to grow. They don't want to know more about the Word of God. And so the leaders of God's people today, they should be teachable. If, for example, someone from some place, somewhere on earth, finds out something about the will of God that he or she read in the Bible, points it out to you, you read the Bible too, you should be open to receiving that information, right? One should be teachable. Why? Because we need to grow in wisdom. We need to grow in our understanding of the words of God. The leader who stops growing cannot be a good leader for the people of God. So the first quality, you have to be teachable. To be teachable, you have to be humble. So you have to be teachable. What else? What is the next quality? Capable, right? He may be teachable, but if does not have the gift for it. Because we all have different gifts, right? Some are gifted in doing this. Some are gifted in doing that. Some are gifted in leadership. Some are not, right? And so they have to be capable. They have to have the ability, their God, a God-given ability for them to carry out the work that is needed. So that's number two. What is number three? They have to be God-fearing. Because if they're not God-fearing, they, might, they can easily break the commands of God. Because if a leader is not God-fearing, how can the people of God be led to God? If a person is not God-fearing, but they're afraid of someone else or something else, then instead of leading people to God, they will lead people astray, away from God. What else? They have to be trusted. In other words, they must be honest. They must know the truth and preserve the truth, okay? Lastly, one who cannot be bribed. Because if a leader can be bribed, if a leader wants dishonest gain, if he's greedy or covetous, then he will not make the proper decisions concerning the people of God. I don't know if in the past you've heard of, in, in Tagalog, it's called palakasan. And you will look for a padrino. How do you say that in English? Palakasan. Strong, strong. 
Palakasan, I mean, if you know someone who's in leadership, if you will take them out for dinner, oh, I'm, you know, I have a influence over this leader. And so whatever decision is going to be handed down, it's going to be in my favor. Because after all, well, you know, I have done him favors. And so we must not have leaders like that. Those who are, who are bribed, we must erase that from the leadership of God's people today. So those are the five qualities of God's people that would assist Moses in settling disputes. And what did Jethro say to Moses after giving him this advice? Exodus 18, 23, if you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures and all these people will go home in peace. And so when Jethro gave the advice, what did he say to Moses? He stated the benefit, right? What's the benefit? You'll endure the pressure. And I'm sure Moses would, would love that. However, did you notice what Jethro also added? I want you to notice this. What did Jethro add? Because he respected Moses as the people of God's nation. What did he add? If, right? If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so. Again, it goes back all the way to who? To the Father, to Yahuwah. So all the advice that we take, all the things that we absorb, we have to always make sure, is it according to the will of Yahuwah? It all goes back to whether God wants it or not. That's the bottom line when it comes to leading the people of God. It's all about God's will, what he wants. Because if he, if he wants it, then we must carry it out as God's people. And so what did Moses do after hearing this advice? 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,150 and 10. In short, he was humble enough to accept the advice. It was not against the will of God, so he carried it out. He followed the advice. And what happened because of this? Exodus 18.26, these men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. And so Moses wasn't pressured that much anymore. He wasn't stressed that much anymore. Why? Because he was only handling the cases that were major. And soon after this, what happened? Exodus 18, 27, soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law who returned to his own land. Maybe he brought with him the religion of Moses. We don't know, but what we know is he praised Yahuwah. He recognized Yahuwah as the deliverer of the people of Israel from the proud Egyptians. And so this is Exodus chapter 18. Can you see how it applies to us today? We must understand a lot of the patterns in the Old Testament. It's repeated also in the Christian era. For example, when it comes to the people of God, the first century Christians, because right now we are a small flock, right? A very small remnant is very small. It's called the little flock. Back then, was there also a little flock? In Luke 12, 32, Yahushua says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the 
kingdom. When the church of Yahushua was starting out in the first century, it wasn't a big flock. It was little. It was small. However, it began to grow. And as it began to grow, what happened to the little flock? Let's read in Acts 5, 17 to 18. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Who does not want the little flock to prosper? Who do you think? When Yahushua announced upon this rock, I will build my church. Who was very upset with that? The devil. And so he was going to do anything and everything to make sure that the flock would not grow, right? That the flock would not expand her kingdom. And so what does the devil do? He will try to destroy it. And here, just like what happened to the people of Israel, he used Amalekites. But in this case, it's not the Amalekites. Who did he use? Sadducees, Jewish people. What did they do? They tried to legally oppose, legally destroy the people of God, the small flock during the time of the first century. And so what did they do? They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. I don't know. Is that happening today too? Yeah. I think so, right? Well, what happened because of that? Acts 5, 40 to 42, they called the apostles in and had them whipped and ordered them never again to speak in the name of Yahushua. And then they set them free. As the apostles left the council, they were happy because God had considered them worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Yahushua. And every day in the temple, in the people's homes, they continued to teach and preach the good news about Yahushua the Messiah. And so what happened when... The, the Jewish authorities tried to prevent the, the, the spread of the preaching about Yahushua, the Messiah, or the spread of the, small, the, uh, the flock of Yahushua, the church of, the church of Christ in the first century. The Bible says the apostles all the more continued to preach. They were arrested. They were whipped. They were given a warning never to do that again. But as soon as they left their jail cells, what, what was the first thing that they did? They went to the temple of all places to go to. They went to the temple. Not only did they go to the temple, they went house to house. And what did they do? They preached about the good news and the kingdom. But you know what? The, the devil is not going to give up. And so what did he do next? Acts 6 verse 7. Uh, this is what it says. And so the word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem grew larger and larger. And a great number of priests accepted the faith. And so despite the work of the devil, despite the persecution and opposition, what did the Christians do? They continued to preach the word of God. And what was the result? It continued to spread. And so maybe the devil's thinking it's not working, right? We're persecuting the early Christians, but it seems to be not working. So what else did they try to do? Acts 8, 1 to 3, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So they were not only resorted to legal means, they went to do threats. They threatened them and persecuted them and even killed some of them, right? 
And so because of the great wave of persecution, what happened? They were scattered. However, as they were scattered, what did they do? Acts 8, 4, those who had been scattered, what did they do? They preached the word wherever they went. And so they used that as a way by which to spread the good news or the words of our almighty God. So the devil did not succeed. See, they were the small church of Christ in the first century. The devil tried to attack it from the outside in. It didn't work. But you know, the devil, very cunning. Instead of trying to destroy the church from the outside in, what is he going to try to do? Destroy the church from the inside out. Insidious, isn't it? Right? He will turn the Christians against their fellow Christians. What does he hope to happen? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot last. You know, brethren, we're the very small remnant. And we're growing. And who doesn't want us to grow? The devil. We're so close to the day of judgment. He has limited time left. And so he's going to attack. And he's going to focus on the very small remnant. And so what will he try to do? He will try and destroy us by dividing us up. This is the ploy of the devil. We have to be ready for that. We have to be ready for that insidious attack. The devil will try to destroy us by dividing us using the destructive power of disputes. How many here have a dispute right now? against your fellow small remnant. Do you have a dispute against someone? Maybe you do. Maybe you're thinking about someone that you have something against. You should not be surprised if that is the case. Why? Because the devil is going to be focused on us. And so we have to learn to overcome it, right? You know how we can overcome disputes so that the dispute will not destroy the very small remnant? Do you know what we need to do? It's all about mindset. Do you know what we need to do? I think this is what we need to do. Think of disputes as a virus like COVID-19, right? Why? Because like COVID-19, disputes, if not properly handled, it will spread. You believe that? And if it spreads, what's going to happen? It will destroy us from the inside out. And so... When it comes to COVID-19, what do we need to do first to control it, to contain it? You got to have prevention, right? And so we need to prevent the spread of disputes. How do we do that? How can we prevent the brethren from among the very small remnant from developing hostility, becoming angry, and having disputes against one another? How can we prevent this? We have to know the cause, right? And so what's the cause? Of all disputes and quarreling and fighting. Let's read the book of James 4 and verses 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? You see, even during the days of the early Christians, the devil was trying to do this. This is why if you were to look at the writings of the apostles, James, John, Matthew, Paul, Peter, they were always mentioning something about Christians quarreling against one another. And so the devil was implementing his strategy in the time of the first century Christians. And so the Bible says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? And the answer is, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? And so for us to be able to overcome 
this virus called disputes. For us to be able to prevent a widespread disease of dispute, we need to remove it from its root. We need to look for the evil desires that is at war within us. And how do you do that? How can you remove that evil desire that's within each and every one of us? There's only one way. There's only one way to do that. What is that way? Galatians 5, verses 16, 22, 23. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Because that sinful nature, a lot of it's evil. But if the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, there is no law against these things. You know what Apostle Paul is trying to tell us to do? To boost our immune system, right? Against what virus? Disputes. How do we boost our immune system? The only way to get rid of the evil nature is by living in the Spirit, by being guided by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when we're guided by the Holy Spirit of God, we will produce fruit that is contrary to disputes and anger and jealousy and bitterness. What are the fruits mentioned by Apostle Paul? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is why for us to overcome, to defeat that virus called disputes, we have to make sure we're spiritually, health, spiritually healthy. How can we know if we are spiritually, spiritually healthy? We exhibit in our life the eight fruits mentioned there, right? Do we have enough love and joy and peace? Because if we have these qualities in our life, then we have a strong spiritual immune system that we overcome the evil nature that is within us. What also must we do? In the book of Colossians 3, 12 to 14, since God chose you to be the holy people, he loves you. You must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. What's the opposite of division? Unity. How can we be united as a people, even though we're a very small remnant? It is love. This is why it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love is what will bind us together, even though we have differences, even though sometimes we disagree. Why? Because of love, what can we clothe ourselves with? Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Why is that important? Because it allows us, it allows us to give room for other people's faults. You know what Apostle Paul is trying to tell us? There are times when we need to tolerate each other, right? Because we all are different. And sometimes we have personalities that clash with each other. There are extroverts and there are introverts. There are people who have preferences and there are people who are against those preferences. So how can we bind everyone together in unity? There's only one way. We have to give allowance. We have to give allowance for each other's faults. 
right? And so when we're able to do this, what are we also able to do? First Peter 3, 8 to 9, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. It is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. Bible says, if we are able to live in the spirit, and we have love, and we have clothed ourselves with compassion, tenderheartedness, then we are able to do what only Christians can do. What is that? We don't retaliate. We don't pay back evil for evil. Sometimes that feels good to do, right? This is why people enjoy movies like Rambo. Feels good to get even, right? People like it when they are able to enact revenge against their enemies. That's the human nature. We are called to be different. We are called to be people of God. And the people of God, they're different. How are they different? The Bible says when they are insulted, when they are, someone does them wrong, they pay back with a blessing. And the Bible says if we're able to do that, then we will be blessed by God as well. This is how we can prevent, brethren, the receiving of that infectious dispute that causes division. What else must we do? Book of James 1.26, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. What else must we do so that we don't end up having all these disputes against one another? We need to learn to control our tongue, right? In other words, we need to put that mask, right, that mask, control the tongue. Well, if we're going to control our tongue, what should we do not, what must we never do? Uh, Leviticus 19.16, do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am Yahuwah. And so how can we control our language? How can we control our tongue to make sure that we will not cause the people of God to go against each other. We must not spread any kind of gossip. Because when you spread slanderous gossip, what happens to the people of God? They begin to talk. The more they talk, the more they spread. The more you spread, what happens? It becomes a pandemic. And if it's, and if it's a pandemic, pretty soon the people of God are against each other, destroying one another. We must not do that. How else? How must we use then our language? Ephesians 4.29, don't use foul or abusive language. Have you, ever, have you ever heard someone who uses foul and abusive language? Even if they're not cursing at you, they're cursing someone else or cursing something else. You don't want to hear it, right? It affects you too, doesn't it? This is why we should never use foul or abusive language. Don't use it. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So choose your words wisely. Now, here's a question. If we will follow all these biblical teachings, does it mean we can no longer criticize anyone? What do you think? 
Does it mean we cannot criticize one another? Hmm? What do you think? Because we want to avoid disputes because disputes leads to quarrels, people fighting against each other, causing division. Does it mean we will no longer criticize at all? Well, let's read what Yahushua has to say, Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Don't criticize, and then you won't be criticized, for others will treat you as you treat them. And why worry about a speck in the eye of a brother when you have a board in your own? Should you say, friend, let me help you get that speck out of your eye, when you can't even see because of the board in your own? Hypocrite! First get rid of the board, and you can see to help your brother. And so Yahushua says, what? Don't criticize. Does it mean we, cannot, we can no longer criticize each other point blank? Oh, no, that's not what Yahushua is saying. He says, don't criticize because others will treat you as you treat them. There are times when we do need to criticize. But before you criticize, understand this first. Yahushua is telling us if you criticize, you will be treated as you are. You, they will treat you as you treat them. And so before we even criticize, what do we need to understand first? Yahushua says, uh, when you have a board in your own eye. In other words, before we criticize anyone, maybe you're thinking of someone right now that you really want to criticize. Are you thinking of someone right now that you want to criticize? Maybe they're from out of state or out of the country. I don't know. Maybe they're your neighbor. You're thinking about this person you want to criticize, right? Before you do that, Yahushua says, get rid of that board in your eye. What does that mean? It means all of us have faults. You're criticizing a fault from someone else. Well, be mindful first of your own faults and biases, right? As human beings, we all have biases. We all have our own faults. So maybe it could be ruining our perception of this person that we want to criticize. So Yahushua says, get rid of the board from your own eye, right? Get rid of it. How do you get rid of the board in your own eye? We have to learn to understand why we are finding fault in the first place. When we remove the board from our own eye, what can we do now? The Bible says, Yahushua says, now you can see. Now you will know the truth of it, the reality of it, the real problem behind the reason why you want to criticize. And after you do that, what should, you, what should be your motivation in criticizing in the first place? And this is the, the last part that really, really should be taken in by all of us. He says, to help your brother. If you're going to criticize to hurt your brother or sister, don't do it. But if you're going to criticize to help your brother and sister and are willing to provide that help, then that's a way when we can help each other grow and become spiritually mature. Do you see the difference? That is how Yahushua has taught us to improve one another so that each of us can be a cause for each other to becoming better people as people of God. But sometimes despite all of our methods and abilities and ways of trying to prevent the disease, it happens, right? We're only human beings. And so we're going to sometimes say things that may hurt other people, do things that may hurt other people. And so what we need now is treatment. And so if someone has caught the dispute and they're upset and offended, what is the first step? How do we treat that problem? Any idea? I think you know, right? What's the first thing you need to do? 
Matthew 18, verse 15, the one speaking here is Yahushua. If your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault, but do it privately. Just between yourselves, if he listens to you, you have won your brother back. According to Yahushua, if someone has offended you, someone has hurt you because they said something or did something, what is his instruction? What do you need to do? Yahushua says, if he sinned against you, you who were sinned against, you who got offended, you have to be the one to approach the one who sinned against you. And how must we do this? This is the key word of the whole verse. Privately. Because sometimes what we do is instead of confronting the one who did what was offensive to you, you talk to other people, right? And as you talk to other people, what happens? You also tell stories maybe about that person. And this person will tell stories about that person. And so what happens to the problem? It becomes worse. This is why we have to follow the teaching of Yahushua. Someone sinned against you? Go speak to that person face to face. And what should be the purpose of your speaking to that person? Bible says to win your brother back, right? So you have to contain it. Don't expose it. Contain it like you would contain COVID-19. Contain it. And so let's say you did that, but the brother doesn't want to listen to you. What's the next step? Matthew 18, 16. But if he will not listen to you, take one or two other persons with you so that every accusation may be upheld by the testimony of two or more witnesses, as the scripture says. Let's say the person doesn't want to listen to you. And so what will be the next step? Let's take others who can help. People who are witnesses to the problem, who may be helpful in this situation. What, is, what are the witnesses going to do? Pour gasoline on the fire? Because sometimes when you choose witnesses, you choose the wrong ones. You pour gasoline instead of pouring water. No, we're here to reconcile. That's the main goal. And so let's say you come up with two or three witnesses and still the problem is not resolved. The person doesn't want to reconcile. What's the next step? Matthew 18, 17. If he still refuses to listen, then take your case to the church. And if the church's verdict favors you, but he won't accept it, then the church should excommunicate him. What is that called? Quarantine, right? Because you don't want that virus to spread. You don't want that dispute to affect others, causing others to, to dispute more and more people. And so we don't want that happening. And so first we tell it to the church. What does that mean? The advisors, the judges, they listen to both sides. And using the word of God as a standard will make a decision. If that decision is rejected, that person is taken out of fellowship so that it doesn't affect the others. However, does it mean that we mistreat this person who is removed from fellowship? Oh, no. That's not what we are about. In fact, James says in 5.16, admit your faults to one another and pray. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. And so if ever we have a dispute against a fellow brother or sister, and no matter what we do, the dispute doesn't go away. There's problems. Maybe they went away for a long time. But we should pray for them. Pray for them. What is our hope? That we will admit our faults to one another. When we do this and we pray to our God and we pray for each other, we will be healed. If ever we have a sickness, God says, 
God will heal us and our prayers will have great power and wonderful results. And so we should reconcile right away. Lord Yahusha says, if we reconcile, we must do it right away because it will affect our worship. This is why if you are offering your gift and all of a sudden you remember a believer has something against you, do not offer your gift yet. Make peace first with the one that you have something against. What do we need to be able to do that? In Ephesians 4, 29 to 32, Bible says, don't say anything that would hurt another person. Instead, speak only what is good so that you can give help wherever it is needed. That way, what you say will help those who hear you. Don't give God's Holy Spirit any reason to be upset with you. He has put his seal on you for the day you will be set free from the world of sin. Get rid of all your bitterness, hot tempers, anger, loud quarreling, cursing, and hatred. Be kind to each other, sympathetic, forgiving each other as God has forgiven you through Christ. And so when we do that, and practice that, we will control the disputes that the devil can use as a tool to destroy us from the inside out. Don't let him do that. Let us be mindful of each other, love each other, pray for each other. So together, as a people of God, a very small remnant in these last days, we'll continue to grow and continue to follow God's teachings. Okay? Uh, let's go now to our mailbox. We have two questions today. First one is, kindly explain and help me understand, Bo, in our next BHP about cremation. Now, this is a topic many people are talking about because those who perish with deadly coronavirus in China and maybe some other parts of the world were being cremated. Is cremation biblical? If the, boy, if the body was cremated, how can our soul return to the body? If the body were turned to ashes on the second advent of our Messiah, Yahushua, this verse Paul says, from dust to dust, not dust to ashes. Well, ashes are so dust. <laughs> Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Here's a question for you. If a person was burned, person was burned, completely burned, right? Can God still resurrect that person? Can God say, well, I'm sorry. I mean, I was planning to bring back your spirit, but because it's burned, I cannot bring you back to life anymore. Do you think God will say that? When God created the heavens and the earth, did he start out with a body? What did the Bible say? Nothing. From nothing. So from nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't you think God can recreate you even if you don't have a body? Because when you look at the, when you go to, I want you to go tonight, go to a graveyard and dig up a tombstone. Go into the tomb and look at the, uh, of course, I'm not going to make you do that. Imagine yourself doing that, right? You open up a crib. You look at the dead body. It's been dead for centuries. How does it look like? Is it dust? Look at a pile of dust and a pile of ashes. They look the same? They look the same, right? They look the same to me. But even without that, God can create you and recreate you. I just wanted to point that out. Having said that, is it God's will? Uh, for Christians, Yahushians, to practice cremation. I believe it's not God. It's, I believe God's will is for us to bury, not 
to practice cremation. And there's at least five reasons why we should not practice cremation, okay? I'm gonna go briefly through these five reasons. Number one, it goes against the pattern shown by the people of God. Also Paul said, 2 Timothy 1.13, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by faith and love that you, get, that you have in Christ Jesus. So according to Apostle Paul, there's a pattern from scripture that we need to follow. And what is that pattern? Burial is the pattern for God's people throughout scriptures. Neither the Old Testament Jews nor the New Testament Christians cremated or dead. Rather, they washed the body, wrapped it in clean clothes with spices, and placed it in the ground or in a tomb. That's the pattern of the people of God. Joseph, Abraham, all the way to the New Testament, and the greatest messenger of all, Yahusha himself. What happened to him when he died? John 19, 40 to 42, two men took Yahusha's body, wrapped it for burial, placed Yahusha's body therein, the tomb. So Yahusha was placed in a tomb when Moses died. The Bible says God himself buried him. And so when we look at the pattern of God's people, what is that pattern concerning the dead? They are to be buried, not cremated. Why else must we not practice cremation? Number two, because we must glorify God in all things. Corinthians 10 verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And with our body after it passes, we, we do not glorify God if we burn our body. What else? Number three, we must show proper respect for the body. In the book of Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who has given and who was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourselves, but to God. He bought you for a price. So use your bodies for God's glory. And so the body, it should be respected. Why? Because it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it should not be burned, right? It should be buried and it must be prepared before the burial. Just like what happened in the Old Testament, Genesis 51 to three, Joseph, threw himself on his father, crying and kissing his face. Then Joseph gave orders to embalm his father's body. It took 40 days, the normal time for embalming. The Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. And so because of respect for the body of Jacob, what did Joseph command his servants to do? To embalm his father's body out of respect for the body because the body is important to God. And so even Yahusha's body, what happened to it? John 19, the two men took Yahusha's body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices according to the Jewish custom of preparing a body for burial. And so we can see the pattern again. The body, after it dies, it is prepared before it is buried to show respect for the body. Reason number four, cremation actually dishonors the body. What's the proof? The book of Amos, Yahuwah says, the people of Moab have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They dishonor the bones of the kings of Edom by burning them to ashes. And so one of the ways I wish to show you dishonored someone was when you burned them into ashes. And so we can see that cremation is an expression that dishonors 
the body. And lastly, number five, burial expresses hope in the resurrection. You notice in the Old Testament, the people of God, when they acted different uh, scenes, like last week when Moses struck the rock and the, and the rock gave out water, they were acting out a scene. It's an actual place. Why was that important to God? Because it was foreshadowing something that is to take place in the future. Right? And so God, he uses our actions now as a way to express our hope. So when we bury the dead, it's a way of expressing hope and faith in the promise of God's resurrection. This is what Apostle Paul says, Corinthians 15, 35, 38. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. And God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. And so Apostle Paul is telling us, when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, it's like planting a seed. How do you plant a seed? How do you plant a seed? You burn it? How do you plant a seed? Put it in the soil. You bury the seed, right? And what happens after you bury the seed? 42 to 44, this is how it will be when the dead are raised to life and the body is buried. It is mortal. When raised, it will be immortal. When buried, Apostle Paul says it is ugly and weak. When raised, it will be beautiful and strong. When buried, it is a physical body. When raised, it will be a spiritual body. There is, of course, a physical body, so there has to be a spiritual body. And so what Apostle Paul is telling us, when we die and we are buried, he is pointing to the fact there's going to be a resurrection. And when we are resurrected, the body we have now is going to be different. Because our body is going to be a spiritual body. It's like, that's why he said, when the physical body dies, you bury it, it looks ugly and weak, right? Just like a seed. When you plant a seed, what kind of seed? Uh, maybe an apple seed. Does the apple seed look like the apple? No. It's when you bury the apple seed, the, the tree grows up, and then the, it bears the fruit of the apple. It looks totally different from the seed. The seed looks irrelevant. It looks totally different from the apple, right? It's the same thing with our body. It's going to be different. It's going to change into a spiritual body. Like whose body? Philippians. We, however, are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Yahushua Christ, to come from heaven. He will change our weak mortal bodies and make them like his own glorious body, using that power by which he is able to bring all things under his rule. And so because of all these reasons, as Yahushans, we should not practice cremation, okay? But, there's a but, but brother, because of COVID-19, this body has to be burned. Let's say we have a Yahushan who died because of COVID-19, and so he was burned, burned, and he becomes ash. Is he going to perish in hell because of that? Ecclesiastes 9, 5 to 6, the living at least know they will die, but the dead, 
No, nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered whatever they did in their lifetime. Loving, hating, envying is all long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. In other words, what happens to them after they die, they're not accountable to. This is why we cannot say, oh, this person was cremated. This person is not going to be saved. Okay, well, how about this, brother? Well, how about if the government says, or maybe the hospital says, you should cremate this person who died, but you don't want them cremated. But if you're not going to agree that he will, they will be cremated, they're going to throw you in jail. So you say, okay, cremate him. Or maybe because if it's not cremated, then there's going to be the spread of the virus bringing harm to a lot of people. During those instances, do you think God will allow for the body to be cremated? Yeah. What's the proof? Book of Matthew 12, 3 down to 4. Yahushua said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and they broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And so God made provisions for the needs of David. He allowed it because he saw it was a need of David. Otherwise, David and his men would die of hunger. And so even during our time, if there's a need for people's bodies to be cremated because of the COVID-19, yes, God would permit that. That would not be a problem with God at all, right? Because if it's ashes or dust, it doesn't matter to him. God is able to resurrect you and bring you back to life, okay? All right, let's go to number two. Last question in our generation today. Should we practice Sabbath since it's in the Bible? That's right. Exodus 16, 29, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. And that's why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day. So there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. Exodus 20, verse 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. Okay, so it's about the Sabbath. We discussed the Sabbath um, somewhat during uh, in one of our Bible studies. When we, talk, when we talked about Exodus chapter 16, right? The purpose of the Sabbath is because God knows our body. He wanted to model what he did when he created the heavens and the earth. He rested on the seventh day. So God wants us to also rest. Whose benefit is that for? For our benefit. God knows us because he created us. God knows we need rest. We need rest. And so the Sabbath was made, according to Yahushua, for our needs, and so in the Old Testament, when the Sabbath law was instituted, first of all, for whom was it instituted for and under what covenant? Let's go to the book of Exodus 31, 12 to 13. Yahuwah then gave these instructions to Moses. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day. For the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation, it is given so you may know that I am Yahuwah who makes you holy. When Yahuwah gave the command to keep the Sabbath day, for whom specifically was it for? Israel. Under what covenant? The covenant of Moses. It's called the Mosaic 
covenant. This is why when Yahuwah liberated the people of Israel in Exodus 16, right? God gave them a command about the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. Is it an important command to God? Yeah. That's why he said it is something that you need to do from generation to generation. Are we going to do the Sabbath too? Yes, but in a different way. What do you mean in a different way? Because we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. What did God, Yahuwah, say concerning this covenant? Hebrews 8.8, 8, but when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says Yahuwah, when I will make, what does it say? A new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And so he's going to replace the Mosaic covenant. And when he has done that, what happens to that covenant? Hebrews 8, let's go to 13 now. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. So the Mosaic covenant, it will become obsolete. It will be replaced by what? A new covenant. And what is this old covenant? The covenant of Moses all about. Take note, there's a difference between the Old Covenant, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Covenant of Abraham. Those are two different covenants. We're talking about Mosaic Covenant, which includes ceremonies and laws and Sabbaths. Okay? Hebrews 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The, sacrifice, the sacrifices under that system were repeated again, and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. And so the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is only a shadow. It was a preview of good things to come. What is this good thing to come? The new covenant. And what does it mean that it foreshadowed the good things to come? What does it mean that when the good things to come, that uh, what would happen to this old Mosaic covenant? Colossians 2, 16, 17. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. Because in the Mosaic covenant, there were regulations about what to eat, right? What not to eat. Or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. And so during, in the Mosaic covenant, there were some commandments of God about feasts and festivals, including the sabbaths for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come and christ himself is that reality so the mosaic covenant pointed to yahusha it pointed to the new covenant that yahusha would bring and so what is apostle paul telling us he's telling us when yahusha comes he will usher in a new covenant and so what was being done before is going to have a radical transformation. For example, before, when the people of Israel wanted their sins forgiven, what did they have to do? Offer burnt sacrifices every day, year after year, right? That was the Old Testament. But when Yahushua came, what happened? Hebrews 7.27, unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Yahushua did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. 
And so you notice there was a repetitive nature in the Old Testament, how you had to sacrifice again and again and again. But when Yahusha came, because he was a perfect sacrifice, no longer do you have to keep repeating that because he did this once for all. And so when we go to the new covenant ushered in by Yahusha, the Christ, the old way has become obsolete. The Mosaic covenant has led us now to the new covenant of Yahusha HaMashiach. And so in this new covenant, how, how can we enjoy that Sabbath rest? Yahusha said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so how can we enjoy this rest that is reflective of the Sabbath? The book of Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Then Yahushua said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. Just like there's no need for us to kill an animal and have, it and have it burnt as an offering for the forgiveness of sins because it was done for us once and for all. Yahusha now becomes our Sabbath now and forever. How can he become our Sabbath? When we take his invitation, come to me and bear, and bear his yoke. That's how we fulfill the Sabbath. Do we, do we fulfill the Sabbath? Do we honor the Sabbath today? Yes! How so? By going to Yahusha for our rest. And this rest is not just for one day out of the week. This is eternal rest for our souls. That's the wonderful thing about this new covenant. Right? Once and for all, including the rest promised by Yahusha the Christ. So do we honor the Sabbath? Yes. But we do it in a more complete way through Yahusha the Christ and the sacrifice he has given for each and every one of us. Okay? So that is our lesson for tonight. Before we go ahead and pray, just a reminder, please join us tomorrow and every Friday for our prayer because we are going to pray for the afflicted, for those who have been affected by COVID-19 and other matters concerning uh, the welfare of humanity and so we will call upon the name of yahuwah and we will play we will pray to our father that he will deliver us from all these troubles that we can find calm and quiet in our day-to-day -day existence as we wait for the second advent of his beloved son let us stand brethren and we shall pray together yahuwah our great god yes who delivered his people long ago yes. from the proud Egyptians by means of miracles and wonders. Amen. Father, we as a people in these last days yes. have learned so much from you. Yes. Father, thank you because you still remember your people. Amen. We know we can become stubborn. Yes. There are times when we have ignored you. Yes, Father. But we believe, Father, even when we are faithless. Yes. You remain faithful yes. because you are true to your promise. Amen. We thank you because under the old covenant, yes. you have provided ways for us to understand your character. Yes. To know what is important to you. Yes. 
yes. to know you as our one and only God. Amen. And so under this new covenant, we believe that you have greater things in store for all of us. Yes. Help us, O oh Father, to all the more approach you. Yes. Because you have given us freedom to do so. Yes. Thank you so much. Every moment in our life yes. can be an opportunity to fellowship with you. Yes. This is the greatest blessing of all. To be with you, Yahuwah, our Father, yes. always in our life. Amen. Remember your people all over the world. Yes. Even those who do not yet know you. Yes. Those who were afflicted by disease. Yes. Those who were going through difficult times. Yes. Father, deliver them all. Yes. Have mercy upon us all. Yes. Even if we may have differences. Yes. Help us, O oh Father. As human beings, give us more opportunities yes. to be able to know you and worship you yes. as the only true God. Amen. Our Lord Yahusha the Christ, yes. we, your followers, praise you at this moment. Yes. Be with each one of us. Yes. We don't want to live apart from you. Yes. We need you in our life. Yes. Pray for all of your followers yes. so that even if we're going to be persecuted, we will remain strong because of your name yes. that we Lord. bear in our minds and Amen. our hearts. Oh, Father, please bless us that we will have kind hearts, yes. that we will show humility yes. so that if ever there are disputes, we will overcome them. Yes. Give us enough of your spirit, Father, yes. that we will live according to your guidance yes. and be able to show love and tender mercy towards one another. Amen. Teach us to forgive, O oh God, yes. to reconcile and make peace with all those who are different from us. Amen. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. You have blessed your people all over the world. Yes. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen.